Hello and welcome to Subject ACT. I'm Heather Murray. Subject ACT brings you stories from your local Canberra community and beyond, stories with a global dimension. Consumerism versus materialism. What's the difference and why does it matter? Well, tonight I'm bringing you an episode on this very topic from our archive. In 2017, Subject ACT's Nathan Gubler sat down with Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute to talk about Richard's book, Curing Affluenza, How to Buy Less Stuff and Save the World, published and available through Red Ink. Over to Nathan. Welcome to Subject ACT. I'm Nathan Gubler. When I was at university, I was recommended a book by Clive Hamilton and Richard Dennis called Affluenza. It talked about Australian culture as one that encourages a lot of purchase and consumption uh, for people who do earn pretty good money and yet still feel they are poor, both in terms of money and time. Well, there's now a follow-up to Affluenza. It's called Curing Affluenza by Richard Dennis, who is also the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute and also the host of the Saturday Papers Lucky Country podcast. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Richard to discuss the new book, how things have changed since the uh, first book was released, and also how we can begin to shift this culture of affluenza and even work less. Richard, welcome to Subject ACT. Thank you. So, uh, first place to start is, what is affluenza? Ha. Affluenza is often described as the process of spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't know. Mm-hmm. But I, it's bigger than that. What I say in the book is affluenza is this culture, not just that money can buy happiness, but a culture in which buying things and throwing them away, even though they're still perfectly functional is a normal thing to do. Mm. In the 7,000 years of recorded history, this is a new idea. Mm. So so for me, talking about affluenza is talking about the idea that one of the richest countries in the world, living at the richest point in world history, is full of people that feel broke and stressed. And the reason we feel that is because we feel we don't have enough stuff or we don't have the right stuff, Mm. when in reality, stuff isn't really going to make us happy. And in the book, you even mentioned, like, even going back as, you know, as soon in history as your own father saving rubber bands, um, that kind of, you know, idea of keeping things that might be of use later is kind of out the window now. That's right. So, yeah, my parents, you know, their second drawer is full of balls of rubber bands that they can't bring themselves to throw away When because when they were growing up, rubber bands were rare. Mm. Why would you throw away a perfectly good rubber band? Well, I grew up in a house that was never short of rubber bands. Yeah. So I grew up in quite a different culture to my parents. But, but big picture, yeah, the idea that we just chuck things away when, when, because it's easier to throw them away and buy a new one, mm. is a new idea. Mm. It's new for us in Australia, and it's actually rare in the world. There's seven and a half billion people in the world, and only about one and a half billion live a lifestyle that revolves around throwing things away and replacing them mm. because we can't be bothered planning ahead or storing things. Mm. And even something like... Uh in the book, you mentioned a couple of times bottled water. Like, um, you know, I can even think back 20 years ago, like bottled water wasn't, you know, as um, ubiquitous as it is now. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. Like now I find like I don't think about bringing water and I go, oh, I'll just buy some, which is, uh, you know, it's pretty damaging to the environment overall. Look, it's damaging to the environment, but it's also very, very expensive. Mm. 
Well, yeah. you said um, petrol co- uh, costs less. Oh, far less. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, your average bottle of water, if you do the maths, it's around $10 a litre. I used to work at a petrol station and no one ever came in and complained about the price of water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they complained about this incredible substance called petrol, uh, one litre of which can move a tonne of metal a very long way. Mm. Petrol's an incredibly valuable resource. Mm. We complain about that and we voluntarily pay 10 bucks a litre for water. Mm. Now, the point I'm making in the book is isn't that you should never buy bottled water or you should never ever you know waste money on anything what i'm saying in the book is look in a rich country what a lucky privileged thing it is that we can afford to waste so much money mm. on such weird stuff yeah but not many people feel lucky doing that in fact, our culture makes them feel poor. Poor, yeah. And because we feel poor, we feel that we can't afford to have the kind of health system or education system or public transport system that, that people in Europe take for granted. Mm. We feel like we can't afford uh, to do things that we used to do in Australia 30 years ago. Mm. Well, we can. We're just choosing instead to do a lot of really weird stuff, yeah. like buy food we don't eat and throw it out buy bottled water when water's available for free or chuck out a perfectly good phone or an appliance because a new model came along. Mm. Again, if that's what you want to do, go do it. Yeah. But feel lucky when you do it. Yeah. Don't yeah. feel poor when you do it. Are you accounting for uh, a change in what might be defined as necessities or needs uh, nowadays uh, in your analysis of what affluenza is? Yeah. Look, basically what I'm saying in the book is that needs and necessities, wants, these are all culturally determined. Okay. Um, there's no such thing as the right clothes to wear or mm. the right shoes to wear or indeed how often to have a shower. Mm. These are culturally determined things. And I, I refer to affluenza as a culture in the book, a culture that says that the way to fit in the way to be a normal citizen in Australia is is to be a consumer, to be the kind of person that's regularly out there buying new stuff, mm. wearing new stuff, showing people that you've got the new stuff on. Mm. You wouldn't want to look old-fashioned. You wouldn't want to look out of date. Yep. To fit in requires participation in a certain kind of commun- consumer culture, mm. Mm. which as an economist and as a citizen, I'm in no position to say what our culture should be or shouldn't be. But I am, as a citizen, entitled to say, is this really the culture that we wanted to build? Mm. Because if we look around the world, we see that different people have made different decisions to we have in Australia. If we look back in history, we see that people have made different decisions to we do in Australia. Really, what I'm trying to say in the book is there are lots of options. We're often told there is no alternative. Yeah. Well, I'd say we're surrounded by alternatives. Once upon a time, people wore cod pieces. That's a bit weird. That's really weird. Well, what do you think people are going to think when they look back in 100 years' time at some of the decisions we're making today? Mm. But what worries me is some of our weird arbitrary decisions are actually causing us to do incredible harm to the environment. Mm. We're not just making ourselves look silly. We're actually doing incredible, irreversible damage to the environment Mm. and we're making ourselves feel stress and poor all at the same time that we're doing weird stuff. Mm. And I think we need to reflect on our culture. Um, You also mentioned uh, that the economics orthodoxy now is that um, with more consumption, more uh, sales for 
um, increasingly more useless things that uh, that is somehow uh, causing a lot of growth. Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, everyone benefits overall. Uh, you, you kind of question that sort of orthodoxy, uh, correct? Question it, yes. I yeah. reject it in its entirety. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, look, we've been told for decades now that uh, going to the shops to buy things we don't need and then throwing those things out soon after makes the economy strong. Makes you a good citizen. Makes you a good citizen. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, this is, I have fun with this in the book. We're, we're kind of being asked to, to make sacrifices in the way that once people were asked to sacrifice a goat or some grain to make it rain, we're told that we should sacrifice our money and our weekends to go buy stuff we don't need mm. that we then chuck out to make the economy gods happy so that we can have a strong economy. Well, as an economist, I find this remarkable and, and quite bizarre. The idea that the faster a country imports stuff and buries it in the ground, the richer we become has mm. nothing to do with economics. Mm. Yet we're told again and again that a strong retail sector is some form of proof that our economy is going well. Now, to be clear, a strong retail sector is great for the people who own shops, yeah, and yeah. it's not bad for the people who work in shops. Yeah. But, but imagine the following scenario. Imagine instead of going to the shops this weekend and spending a 1000 bucks on stuff, imagine you went and spent that $1,000 on uh, singing lessons, piano lessons, maths tutoring for your kids, getting a massage uh, or, uh, or or paying someone to give you a tour of the city to learn something you didn't know before. Mm. Well, that $1,000 that you spent on services will probably create more jobs than that $1,000 if you'd have spent it on yep. imported stuff. Yeah. So we wouldn't reduce GDP. We wouldn't reduce the size of the economy if we stopped buying stuff we didn't need mm. and spent the same money buying services. But what we would do is reshape the economy. Yeah. And and this is a central kind of point I'm making in the book is that we've kind of got obsessed with the size of the economy and everyone's saying, I know how to grow it. Well, I think what we need to worry about is the shape of the economy. So when someone says they want to grow the economy, the next question should be, which bits? Yeah. Which bits do you want to grow? Yeah. Because I want to grow. I like growth. Mm. I really want the economy to grow. I want the renewable energy sector of the economy to grow. Yeah. And I, I want the coal-fired sector to shrink. Uh, I'd love the health and edu education sectors to grow. That'd be really good from my point of view. Yeah. And, and I'd be very happy. Uh, I'd be very happy to see the old growth logging industry shrink. Mm. So I know which bits of the economy I want to grow, and I know which bits I'm happy to see shrink. Mm. I'm not right about that. That's a democratic question that we can all participate in. Mm. But we've kind of jumped over that important and interesting and engaging conversation about what do you want more of and what do you want less of, and instead we have this banal, I'd say meaningless fight about do you want growth of the economy mm. or do you want decline? Mm. Well, I want growth in the bits I want to grow mm. and I want decline of the bits I want to decline. We know how to do this stuff. Um, there's a great contribution in the book by Leanne Minchel who talks about how Amsterdam became one of the most car-friendly, uh, sorry, pedestrian-friendly, bike-friendly cities in the world. It happened because a large number of mainly women in Amsterdam in the 60s and 70s started blockading streets 
and saying, our kids play in these streets. Mm. You can't drive down them all the time. So Amsterdam didn't become a car, a, a pedestrian-friendly city because of some giant bureaucratic plan. Mm. It became a car... It became, I keep saying it the wrong way, it became <laughs> a pedestrian and bike-friendly city because the citizens demanded it be that way. Mm, mm. Now, of course, in Australia, we have the opposite, where we ripped up trams in Sydney in the 1960s and filled our roads with cars. Yeah. So we know that we can make decisions, good or bad, that reshape our cities. Mm. That's what counts. Mm. Yet we don't have that conversation. We have this banal conversation about do you want growth yeah. or do you want unemployment? Yeah. Um, I was wondering what you thought about this uh, contradiction, at least I've noticed, um, particularly in the centre-right of politics. There's a lot of disdain for this idea of top-down cultural influence with things like safe schools, all this talk about indoctrination and stuff. And yet they kind of turn a blind eye to the uh, cultural influence that advertisers and corporations have, um, which... um, clearly, like in your analysis, are influencing the culture in major ways. Absolutely. Uh, Look, and I launched the book in Hobart recently, and Bob Brown made the following point. He said, it's okay for companies to tell us to buy particular brands Mm. of ice cream, but apparently it's not okay for a union to not tell us to buy a particular brand of ice cream. So, you know, if if Unilever and Streets want to behave in particular ways that, that, that their workers find offensive... Well, with freedom of speech, you'd expect the centre-right to be out there saying, yes, you know, yes, workers, yes, community, be as critical as you want (laughs) Mm. uh, of this particular company. Uh, But, of course, we find the opposite. So, look, I I think you're right. Uh, I think you put it quite politely. I think it's rank hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We we have uh, conservative support for churches telling us Mm. what's right and wrong. We have conservative support for companies telling us what's right and wrong. Yet when individuals want to get together and talk about what's right and wrong, uh, the right do, uh, some of the right, not all of them, uh, go out of their way to try and silence their critics. Or indeed, they've invented this new term called virtue signaling, mm. where when when people sort of say, hey, I donated money, or hey, I volunteered my time, or hey, I put a solar panel on my roof, you know, this is a good thing, why don't you do it too? Uh, some conservatives have invented this term called virtue signaling, which they kind of use to demeaningly suggest that these people are off doing symbolic things. Yeah. Well, well, symbols matter. Mm. Telling other people in your community what you're doing and why mm. is how you shape your community's perception of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say in the book, imagine if instead of impressing your neighbours with a big, expensive German car, you impressed your neighbours with a big, German, expensive solar array. Yeah. That's still status-seeking behaviour, mm. but it's not the, the, these arbitrary choices about how we signal our status, big car versus big solar array, the choice might be culturally arbitrary, but the environmental consequences are entirely different. Mm. So, you know, I argue in the book that telling other people in our community what we're up to and why is a really important way to shape culture. And sometimes I think progressives underestimate that and indeed say, oh, I don't want people showing off and impressing people. Status is bad. Well, I don't think... 
I don't think chasing status is the way to get yourself happy. But if some people want to chase status, yeah. I'd rather them chase it through the product of a big solar panel. Mm. I'll give them a little clap when I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather see them chase status through that mm. than some big car that's just going to burn petrol and, and, and give me air pollution. Mm. You're listening to Subject ACT on 2XX 98.3 FM, your people-powered radio station. I'm Nathan Gubler, and I'm currently in conversation with Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute about his new book, Curing Affluenza. Um, so 10 years ago, you wrote a book with Clive Hamilton about affluenza. What has changed in the last 10 years? Uh, lots. I mean, when we wrote affluenza 10 years ago, it was kind of shocking, I think, for people to hear our diagnosis. Look, mm. you know, Australia's become a country of rich whingers who, yeah. you know, who are stuck on a treadmill. You're not, you know, we, Australia, had said we're the land of the long weekend, the sickie and the smoko, relaxed mateship. Actually, mm. we, we abandoned that. I don't know when or exactly where, yeah. but sometime before we wrote Affluenza, mm. we'd moved on from that. So 10 years ago, we wrote a book saying, look, let's let, we hold a mirror up to some extent, saying, actually, look, we're working long hours, we're borrowing lots of money, we're stressed about it. This is not the Australia that we think we live in. Um, but look, 10 years on, to some extent, I think things are worse because uh, it was shocking for people 10 years to go to be told that that's what their country looks like. Yeah. I guess a lot of people having learnt that shrugged their shoulders and went, oh, well, fair enough then, <laughs> onwards yeah, right. and upwards. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the tone of this book, Curing Affluenza, is, is as the title suggests, really quite different. So, well, what... What, if anything, might we do to fix this? Mm. You know, it's one thing to diagnose. It's another thing to say, what can we do about it? So, uh, I, I, and in 10 years, I think I've moved a long way as well in terms of thinking, well, I don't think we can ever tell people what the right way to live is, what the right size television to have is, what the right number of shoes to have is. Mm. You know, there, I don't think there is a right number. But I do think we can have a, a much different conversation now than we had 10 years ago about, well, how does our culture influence these decisions? Where do, where do our norms and our expectations come from? Mm. And, you know, a little bit optimistically, I do think that new technology is giving us incredible new ways to organise not just ourselves, but our communities and our politics and our economy in ways that were unimaginable only 10 years ago. Yeah. So everything from 3D printers making it a lot easier to make the spare parts we need to repair things mm. to, uh, to, to websites that allow us to very easily buy services or swap secondhand stuff. The, the, the possibilities for living a fulfilled, interesting life that still has novelty in it are yeah. far greater than they were 10 years ago, but it's not obvious what direction we'll go. Um, so the heroes in the first book were a group of people called the, the Downshifters, which um, actively um, uh, rejected taking on more hours in order to uh, live more creative lives. Uh, is that group of people, is that increasing, decreasing? Is it becoming harder to live in that sort of way? Oh, what a good question. Um, yeah, look, the, the, the downshifters in affluenza were a, a group of people, quite diverse, who we'd found through opinion polling and focus groups who'd, who'd made active decisions to uh, either work less hours or do different kinds of jobs, knowing that their income would fall 
people, but in order to make their life, you know, more fulfilling. Um, and I still think that that's a very important phenomena, mm. uh, and 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 not a widely discussed phenomena. Like it's not actually. It's not actually unusual for people to do this. We mm. all know people that quit a job they hate to go do something they love. Yeah. But we usually just talk about people on a big career path, earning lots of money Absolutely. and running things. We yeah. just talk about that side of the coin more. But look, in curing affluenza, while I talk about the the benefits to yourself and the economy and the environment of working less and sharing work more fairly, while we talk about that in this book... I also think that, well, what I talk about differently in this book is that if you're going to earn lots of money, well, and someone wants to pay you a lot of money to do a job you love, this is not a terrible burden to have. If you love your job and you love your hours and you just happen to get paid a lot of money for it, well, okay, how can you use your spending power to reshape your community uh, the, the, and, and minimise the harm we have on the environment. So, as I said before, don't impress people with a giant imported car. Yeah. Why not go and impress people with your giant solar array? Mm. Don't buy all that crap for Christmas that you know people are going to chuck out. Why don't you take people out for a great dinner? Why don't you uh, donate money to people? Why don't you uh, Why don't you buy services that people will get real value out of? Yep. Still, if you want to just show your friends and family how rich you are, go do that if that's mm. what floats your boat. Mm, but mm. don't you don't. There are other ways to do it than just buying crap that you know are going to get thrown out. So, uh, so I guess I emphasise in curing affluenza the the power that we have as consumers. Um, whereas in in the first book, I was probably just more critical of consumerism. Um, in fact, I think a key distinction that I make in this book is between consumerism, which I say is the love of buying things, the thrill of the purchase. Yeah. That's what I call consumerism. And I actually say, perhaps surprisingly for many people, that we need to embrace materialism, which for me is the love of the actual object, mm. the ownership of the thing. Because if you own something and you love it, you wouldn't chuck it out. Yeah. You'd repair it. You'd maintain it. And yep. when you didn't yep. have a use for it anymore, if you loved it, you would help find it a new home. So while in the, in, in the first book uh, we conflated consumerism and materialism, as I think people often do, in this book I've said, look, consumerism, the love of buying stuff, uh, that's dangerous yeah. because you'll never tire of that thrill. Mm, mm. But materialism, I'd say it's the opposite. Mm. Once you've got your stuff, it's okay to love it. Mm. In fact, I want you to love it because if you love it and look after it and repair it, the process of repairing it and maintaining it will create jobs with very little environmental impact and the process of delaying its replacement will mean that your spending pattern will have far less, uh, do far less damage to the natural environment. Mm. Uh, one of the big themes in the first book and also in the second one is the idea of free time, how we can get more free time, which doesn't seem to be a theme much on either side of politics, mm. really. How do we start to 
make this more of a pressing issue? Oh, look, great question. Um, the, the term leisure, uh, and indeed the term man of leisure, and I say man because in the 1800s, course, 1800s yeah. that's how it was usually expressed, a man of leisure was someone who was free to, quote, pursue their passions. Mm. So leisure was once seen as a very active thing. Whereas now we think of leisure time as almost recuperation, you yeah. know, laying oh, on the absolutely. couch, yeah. needing some me time mm. before you can cope <laughs> with yeah. your work or your family again. So once upon a time, leisure was was this very active thing. So free time doesn't mean it doesn't have to mean laying around doing nothing. Mm. Free time means time free from other people's constraints and expectations mm. with which you can pursue your passion. And of course, with the downshifters, that's what it was. That was like the time when I Absolutely. really do what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. And, and that might be spend time with their partner or their kids. It might be going for a long walk. It might be sitting around reading a book. It might be trying to invent the perpetual motion machine in their backyard. Yeah. Who cares? In a, in a country as rich as ours, in a culture as rich as ours, you would think most people would have time to pursue their passions. But actually, we've created a culture where that's not the case. Mm. You know, not many people come back from work after summer pledging to spend less time with their friends, less time with their family and ditching another hobby this year. Mm. When you have a couple of weeks off over summer, most people kind of fantasise about how their life would be different. Oh, I'll exercise yeah. more, I'll finally learn German, whatever it is. Mm. When people have had a bit of time away from the daily grind, they often form these plans, they make New Year's resolutions to this effect, and then most people fail spectacularly yeah. in delivering on them mm. because our culture, our workplace culture, our community culture is one in which work and spending lots of time at work is is rewarded culturally as well as financially, mm-hmm. and individuals just find it very hard to buck that trend. Yeah. Hence why we made heroes out of downshifters yeah. in the previous book. Yeah, and I've often um, pitched to people, hey, what a great idea it would be to have a four-day working Absolutely. week instead of five. And uh, the reaction I often get is like, oh, that's impossible. Like, who's going to work on wherever? Yeah, to some extent, that's really the main point that I'm trying to make in the book is that that reaction that you get from people, mm. that that's impossible reaction yeah. is the fundamental thing that keeps our culture and our community the way it is. And that's not an accident. That's that's how status quos maintain themselves. So I, I guess a, a short history lesson, the idea of a five-day week and a two-day weekend, that's a brand new idea. Yeah, yeah. Brand new idea. 7,000 years of recorded history. The idea that people, most people don't work Saturday and Sundays, it's about 90 years old. Like we had to invent the weekend. And before we had the two-day weekend, of course, we had the one-day weekend, the day of Sabbath, Sunday in Christian cultures. But, of course, not everybody got all Sunday off. Some people just got Sunday morning off to Mm. to go to church. Mm. So the one-day weekend was a new idea. The two-day weekend was a new idea. Of course, the three-day weekend is a new idea that people say is shocking and can't ever happen, just like they said that about Sunday afternoon and Saturday Sunday. Yeah. Um, we started in Australia, we started the 20th century, a new nation with a uh, with a new constitution, and we started it with zero paid annual leave. Oh, wow. Now, over yeah. the course of the 20th century, we went from zero to one week to two weeks to three weeks to four weeks. And then, of course, we got to four and we stopped because four is the right number. 
three wouldn't be enough, five would be way too many. Yeah. If that makes no sense, then good. <laughs> because in other countries, they went on five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks. Yeah. So there's plenty of people in some of the richest countries in the world, in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the Scandinavian countries, with six or seven weeks paid holidays mm. every year. Now, of course, we know that's too many. And they think it's just right. Yeah, yeah. So these ideas about five-day week, four-day week, four-week holiday, six-week holiday, that's just culture. But my profession, economics, is often used to massively limit people's expectations. Mm. Economics is used to say, oh, we'd be uncompetitive if we had five weeks holiday. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But I do know that in Sweden and Norway and Denmark, uh, they have high wages, they have high taxes, they have long holidays. And if you've ever seen a Volvo or been to Ikea, you also know that they're not uncompetitive. They make stuff and sell it to a world that wants to buy it. Mm -hmm. Richard Dennis, thanks for being with us here on Subject ACT. Thank you. That's all we have time for today on Subject ACT. You can find us on Facebook. Just type in Subject ACT. We also have this and other episodes in podcast form on our SoundCloud page and also in the iTunes store. Stay tuned for more quality programming on your people-powered radio station, 2XX 98.3 FM. Thank you.